This episode of the Tech Money Podcast is sponsored by Capital Area Tax Consultants. Capital Area Tax Consultants is a virtual tax and accounting firm that specializes in helping high net worth individuals navigate the complexities of the tax code. While our team of tax pros are well-versed in all things tax, our areas of expertise include rental real estate and equity compensation. With our comprehensive tax planning services, our one goal is to help clients maximize savings and minimize their tax liability each year. At Capital Area Tax Consultants, we believe in pricing transparency and flat fees. Before engaging with us, you'll receive an upfront quote in black and white with a description of any services to be performed. This way, there are no hidden surprises. So don't wait. Reach out to us today to experience a better approach to taxes at www.capgllc.com. Again, that web address is www.capgllc.com. Welcome to the Tech Money Podcast, where the worlds of technology and personal finance collide. Hosted by certified financial planner, speaker, blogger, and self-proclaimed personal finance nerd, Malcolm Etheridge. Each episode aims to make you just a little bit smarter about your money, all from the perspective of the tech professional. Without further delay, here's your host. Hey there, listeners. Malcolm here. And on today's show, we're talking about investing. More specifically, we're talking about ways to keep the waves of new, younger investors who have only recently become interested in the markets engaged long-term, now that the stock market has cooled off, to say the least. Following the bursting of the dot-com bubble in 2000 that stretched all the way into 2002, the American public developed this feeling that the stock market was rigged against them. And considering how many company insiders and those in the know on Wall Street were revealed to have been selling at a time when they were still encouraging retail investors to keep buying, I'd say that sentiment certainly had some merit. But what also followed that seminal moment in investing history was nearly two decades of inactivity, indifference, and outright hatred of the stock market, mostly by a generation of younger investors who at the time were in their 20s and early 30s. And in some cases, they never returned to the markets in a meaningful way. And while it's certainly understandable to feel like you got the short end of the stick when a bubble bursts and you're the one left holding stock in a worthless company, it's important to keep in mind that long term, there is no greater generator of personal wealth than the stock market. And so rather than decide to avoid it completely, it's important to learn as much as possible and make informed decisions along the way. So on today's show, that's what we'll be talking about. My guest, Seth Wonder, is the chief investment officer of Acorns, the app designed specifically for novice investors. Prior to joining Acorns, Seth founded and served as portfolio manager for a couple different asset managers in Los Angeles and New York. He is also a chartered financial analyst and spent his earlier career at Morgan Stanley Investment Management, where he focused on the technology sector. So needless to say, the dude knows his stuff when it comes to the markets. So with that brief introduction, welcome Seth Wonder to the Tech Money Podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me, Malcolm. Appreciate being here. Yeah, no, I appreciate you making the time to do this. So uh, to get us kicked off, Seth, I breezed through your resume pretty quickly in my intro. What else should I have included? From a professional perspective, I mean, I think you touched on most of it in 20 plus years in the markets, looking at tech companies, but overall market trends more broadly. Uh, I love being a student of history. Uh, so certainly not just thinking about the time I've spent in the market, but looking back at past cycles. 
Uh, and then, you know, personally, I've got three kids. I try to teach my kids the good behaviors of, of financial wellness, thinking about investing and understanding what makes stocks go up and down and so forth. And so, you know, we could talk about, you know, how they view the world as well, which I, I think also resonates with people. Yeah. I mean, it, it doesn't hurt to start young, right? That's kind of the, the mantra. And I assume you guys internally, that's your, your mantra as well as to, to capture the attention while folks are young. Yeah, I mean, listen, I was in a stock picking contest uh, or, or stock picking club, I should say, in sixth grade. Uh, I learned young from watching family members of mine talk about the markets growing up. And, and so it was demystified, if you will, for me from a young age, which I think you know helped me out when I was starting my career. Mm-hmm. I try to pass that forward to my kids. But to your point, I mean, the younger you start, whether it's late teens, early 20s, mid 20s or so forth, uh, the longer you have in the markets, you know, the better your opportunity is over the long term. Interestingly enough, you just reminded me, I had an algebra teacher in, I think it was seventh grade, I think, uh, Mr. Russell, who was like super into the markets to the point that he figured out a way to incorporate tracking the markets and learning how to calculate like PE ratios and basic things like that into the lessons. Like he would one day a week incorporate a lesson about the markets and that was one of the things that spurred me having an interest in investing later on down the road because the, the vernacular wasn't intimidating because I at least had like that basic understanding of what the stock market was, how it worked and how to calculate some very simple um, math in relation to, to share prices and that sort of thing. So I, I take your point that like those moments that seem almost not that eventful, you know, as a, a kid probably have the biggest impact on getting you to come to the table, but I digress. Um, let's uh, let's start with Acorns for a second. What do you guys do? Why do you do it? And who do you do it for? Yeah. So, so real simply, you know, what we do at Acorns, you know, we help put the tools of wealth making, responsible financial management in everyone's hands to make it easy to start the process of savings and investing, educating people on how to think about a long-term financial planning and doing it in a way that we think really highlights, you know, the sort of the positive attributes of getting started young and sticking with it for basically for your entire life. Uh, so, so that's our focus. Our customers, uh, we have four and a half million plus customers and who they are, 60% of them self-select as being first-time investors, mm-hmm. uh, geographically diverse around this country. More than 40% are women and the average age uh, in the early 30s, uh, but we run the gamut uh, on that as well. So, so really, you know, how do we help the everyday Americans become smarter about their money and plan, save, and invest for the future? Well, there's quite a few platforms out there that whether they say it or not, they tend to skew toward a, a younger audience. And I'm not asking you to you know, disparage any of your competitors here, but what makes Acorns any different from the many other apps that appeal to younger, you know, novice investors like a Robinhood or a Public or a SoFi or anybody else. Yeah. So in your intro, you said, I forget exactly how you said it, but you said something like uh, the stock market created the most amount of wealth for you know, people in time or some classification like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the reason why people have been so successful in the stock market uh, is, and when you look at history is because the vast majority of that wealth has been created with long-term investing uh, at the center of, of that investment process and that mindset. You know, and what we've done is we've built uh, an easy to uh, an easy to understand and easy to use to your point of demystifying words, language, and understanding of financial markets. You know, I think we've put that sort of educational piece 
front and center for people. Sure. Uh, but we've also built a, a tool that allows for people to stay focused on long-term investing. So yes, there are lots of apps out there that uh, help younger people get into the financial markets. Some of them are focused on getting into the financial markets through trading strategies and short-term investing and so on and so forth. Uh, what we've really centered ourselves around are the time-tested uh the, the, the tools and know-hows of what makes uh, successful long-term investing work, mm-hmm. things like compounding and diversification, staying educated, keeping a long-term view, uh, dollar cost averaging, terms that we could either define, break down, talk about, or at least have your users, your listeners uh, check out on their own. Uh, but we've really, uh, we've designed our product to be uh, easy to use along those lines. So that in something I found unique, you know, as I was preparing for this episode was that I learned that you guys have a chief education officer, right? Which is fascinating to me. And this is not a fancy name for your CEO that you have a a chief executive officer as well. Why was education important enough to create a whole executive level role to support it? Yeah. So if you look at investing, I think the history of investing, people have perceived, it has been for sure. And then the perception has continued where it's either been for the rich, the wealthy, the educated, Mm-hmm. Uh, and it has not been easily accessible for for everybody, you know. And so, one of Acorns' core missions is to be able to open up the access of investing, to make it uh, easy to understand, uh, to do it in a responsible way for the long term. And that democracy, that access, really requires education. Uh, you wouldn't have that uh, democratic process if it wasn't uh, associated or, or combined with it with an educational thread. Yeah. Uh, and so, for us, that's a core pillar of what we do. Um, we have a saying of bringing education to the point of decision making. Mm-hmm. Uh, we try very hard in the app to make sure that as you're going through any decisions you have to you make, you understand why you're making those decisions or what your choices are. Uh, and then more broadly, when you step back, I mean, there's certainly lots of stuff we have in our education hub and so forth for people to self-select into and so forth. So it's a, it's at the center of uh, how we think about the customer and putting the customer first. Something else I found unique is that you guys offer family accounts, um, which then I was like, well, wait a minute. Like, why do you want my baby's pennies too? Right. Like she barely has teeth and you want her in the stock market. Yeah. I'll tell you this. I mean, my daughter is 13 mm-hmm. and uh, so was born in 2009, just as the financial markets were bottoming from the global financial crisis. Mm. I mean, it has singularly been the best decision, I financial decision I have made, setting up her college funds from that very beginning of time for her. You know, she doesn't have access to it, right? But it sets her financial wellness up for her education. And so it's really important for people to plan ahead. You know, the thing is, is like, if you have a two-year-old, one-year-old, five-year-old, eight-year-old, 10-year-old, I mean, you've got a financial uh, investment time horizon that's five years, 10 years, 20 years. And the market returns, if you just look at it, are on your side over that extended period of time. It is truly one of the best uh, approaches for people who uh, who are starting their investment journey to think about doing it for their kids, particularly at a young age. Yeah, I was being facetious there, but I completely agree that it also helps to bring the kids to the table, give them a reason to be having the conversation, right? If you set up that account for them as they were little teeny kids and now there's you know substantial money in there, there's five, ten, twenty thousand dollars in there by the time they get to the age where they would be somewhat interested 10, 12 years old. It's a much easier way to bring them in to the conversation than, you know, trying to start from scratch with five bucks at that point. So I I uh, completely agree. Yeah, well let me say this. I mean, here's the the more 
more intriguing angle of getting your kids investing early, or at least investing for your kids early, is when do you start to teach them what it is to invest? What makes the stock market and individual stocks go up or down? Mm-hmm. And then how do they look at the world through the lens of that, with that educational base uh, and get them set up? So like when they turn 20, 25, 30, that they have those tools to make those decisions for themselves. That's, I mean, that's the fun journey of, of if you start young uh, or start your kids young. Uh, they can grow into it. And also it doesn't hurt that it gives mom and dad a way to be learning themselves at the same time, which is something I I didn't really expect too much until I started volunteering with organizations like Junior Achievement, for example, that do this work with middle schoolers and high schoolers. And then to see the, the level of questions that the kids were asking but then I found out from their teachers later, some of them, their parents were sending them to school with those questions because they wanted the answer to that. And so it's parents being able to sit at the table and learn at the exact same time their kids are and everybody gets educated together, which is a whole other uh, phenomenon. I tell you, I, I, TA, I TA'd a class in college and uh, <laughs> I thought I knew accounting uh, until you start to sit in front of 15, 20 20 of your peers and you have mm-hmm. to educate them on, on the weekly lesson. All of a sudden you, you elevate your game of what you think, you know, uh, in order to be able to explain to somebody else more easily. So, you know, you couldn't be more right. I mean, the idea of passing that down to somebody else or passing paying it forward, uh, you certainly get yourself sharper on the subject. So let me go back to acorns for a second, right? You guys product set spans the gamut of individual stocks, ETFs, mutual funds, et cetera. You can even offer Bitcoin by the slice I've seen, right? So I think you're probably uniquely qualified to weigh in on this question, um, which is how often is the average, you know, 25 year old who was super excited about the stock market this time last year and probably placed four or five trades per day back then and was glued to their cell phone. How much is he or she trading now by comparison, now that the market's not in this high tide, raising all boats kind of environment? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, if you look at it from either uh, market volumes of trading volumes of shares traded from retail investors, uh, you could look at some of the uh, mobile apps who have revenues driven by trading and so forth. I mean, it's down considerably on a year-over-year basis. I mean, you know, maybe 50% plus in, wow. in certain pockets of the of the markets. You know, we don't do trading, just to be clear. I mean, Acorns mm-hmm. is not mm-hmm. a trading application, right? So, uh, and you and you made reference to that. So th- those are numbers that I see and, and observe from looking at uh, market-based factors. But the reality is, is in some in some twisted way, I mean, it is a healthier thing for people to start to learn the process of investing. Let's call it either the right way or for the long term, or, or certainly with a time horizon that's not trading oriented. Sure. Um, and so we're going through that normalization process now. But pure, you know, purely trading, I mean, it's down considerably versus uh, pandemic highs. Yeah, I, I I'm going to say this, but before I do, I'm going to preface it by saying, you know, I'm not asking you to agree or, or disagree because of the seat that you occupy and 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 the folks that you guys compete against. But I think one of the things that also contributes to that type of an environment is the platforms and the apps that are geared more toward gambling that have the triggers and the push notifications and the, everything else to make it so addicting and exciting that it feels like a game, the gamification of the markets, then 
platforms that are designed to teach you the longer term rewards of patience and diligence and, you know, discipline and those kind of things when it comes to uh, longer term results from investing and, and saving and such. And I think that also makes a, a significant difference here when you're talking about the comparison between certain platforms and how we got there in the markets and how folks start to learn, you know, what a real market cycle looks like versus what we've experienced the last, I would say five years since, you know, borrowing has been extremely cheap and that kind of set the stock market on fire a second time. So I, I take your point that like being in position to make sure that people understand the differences, the nuance between trading and investing, even just that one simple difference definitely goes a long way. I mean, it's, it's no different than any other wellness category, right? Mm-hmm, I mean, mm-hmm. If you're thinking about dieting, you know, or, or, or eating healthy, I mean, there are, there are short-term fixes that, that, that help people out if they need to lose weight for, you know, like if you watch someone in college, like wrestle or something to that effect versus, you know, the, the right sustainable way to get your body into a healthy position. Mental health falls into those categories too. I mean, finance is, is truly no different. There are shortcuts, but normally those shortcuts are, are fleeting if you look at them over the long term. Yeah. Well, do you have any insight into how much or whether that same cohort, that 25 or so year old, how much they're trading Bitcoin at the same or similar pace to this time a year ago, maybe? Yeah. I mean, so if you look at cryptocurrencies more broadly, you know, they're down more in terms of volumes and so forth than even the stock market and particularly the pieces of the stock market tied to, let's say, high flying tech stocks or so forth. So, you know, it would be it would be more dramatic on the downside relative to, to what we were just talking about from a day trading perspective. You know, what we tried to do just to just touch upon how we thought about Bitcoin and crypto is to really look at it from a crypto curious perspective, right? So given that 60% of our customers are first-time investors, mm-hmm. knowing that those asset classes and particularly Bitcoin is as volatile as it is, uh, and even though it is 10 years of trading history and a trillion dollars of assets at the peak uh, invested in it, uh, you still have to be cautious about how you think about risk and how much exposure you want to have to something. We think about things from a, a diversification perspective and what's a optimal portfolio uh, construction. And so we enable customers on an opt-in basis if they wanted to to have a very small uh, investment exposure to to Bitcoin and so forth. And you know that truly that's the right way to think about risky assets in terms of how to build an overall portfolio construct. But you know, if someone were sitting here and, and day trading, let's say altcoins and level two coins, and we started dropping vernacular all over the place of everything that was risky, yeah. you know, the trading volumes there would be would be down precipitously year over year. I figured. Like, my main concern is that the the highly volatile, you know, meme stock, crypto, all that kind of stuff that younger people were trading all 2020 and 2021 that frankly brought them to the gate, right? But those have come crashing down in the last six months or so and wiped them out uh, completely. And in a lot of cases, I have to imagine it's left them with a sour taste in their mouth, right? Just like 2000, as I mentioned in my intro, how do you think we keep that subset of the investing public engaged so that they don't just get discouraged and miss out on the next you know, couple decades of market returns? Yeah. So I love this question. So let's be clear about something the period of time, I know you referenced like sort of the post-global financial crisis and into the pandemic, but mm-hmm. realistically, it's been the last two years where asset prices and certain slices of asset prices went crazy. So, so if we were to be honest with ourselves, and, and I think for most people who are younger and investing, 
it really wasn't that long a period of time where we've conflated investing with gambling, you know? And so, yes, there's been a lot of wealth created and a lot of wealth destroyed in a very short period of time. But if you think about like the behavioral tendencies and also the learnings from this period, it's not like we just went through 10 years where we've convinced oh, an enormous cohort of people that this is the only way. Yeah. This was a narrow slice in time. People hopefully have either learned a lesson or observed what happens. Mm-hmm. But the reality is, is, the time-tested nature of the markets more broadly is still a learning lesson that, fine, they've been demystified, they've been exposed, but now we can all step back and say, okay, let's exhale, let's let's appreciate what the long-term market affords us, and then let's invest with that mindset and realize that this last 18, 24-month period of time was more unique than standard commonplace. And if we can, if we can take that say viewpoint, I think people can adjust very quickly. I mean, I'm more excited that lots of people have exposure to the markets and, mm-hmm. and are now excited about what their long-term prospects are than to think that like people can't put the last two years, you know, in a box and say, okay, great, that was fun, that was a learning lesson, I get it, uh, and now let's go back to quote unquote normal. I appreciate your level-headedness around this, and I, I hope that your thesis is actually the the more right way to see this because my concern was based on the small subset of people that either, you know, on Twitter or in our email inbox here on the show or whatever, we're sending in messages to the effect of like, what investment can you guys recommend that will 20 X my return in the next six months? And that is what people's mindset around what a normal investment related question is, right? Like that's the problem that I saw forming that you know, suddenly has convinced people, you know, the fact that there's even this concept out there on social media called lost porn, right? Where you had people yeah. who were making these giant YOLO bets on one individual stock that is a zombie company that has no business even still existing, frankly, in this world. But they're like, I'm just going to take out a $50,000 home equity line, take that $50,000 and buy as many shares as I can of this, you know, failing rental car company or video game company or movie theater chain or whatever, and hope for the best. And the fact that losing the $50,000 publicly on social media was just as entertaining as if you had won. That's the part that I was like, this is a problem. Like this is actually a cultural shift that is a problem. And so I hope that to your point, I am dead wrong. And that's not really a concern that I should have because people are capable of taking the last two years as sort of just a snapshot in time saying, if I did really well in that two-year window, great for me. I caught the wave. That'll never happen again. Or if I missed out on it, too bad for me. I missed out on that wave, but my life is going to be just fine either way. Or I lost X thousand dollars in that time period. And I learned never to do that again because the stove actually is hot. Right. Like, I hope you're right in, in, in that framing. There will always be a repeat of like manias and bubbles and crowdsourced, you know, hype. Right. I mean, that's just the history of the markets. You can go back I and mean, you read any book you want around this, these topics. I've read many. I mean, you go back yeah. hundreds of years of, of these types of behavior patterns. But I mean, like, take the alternative side, right? Like, we witnessed that in 06, 07, certainly the beginning of 08, where people thought housing had the same construct. Mm-hmm. That didn't deter people though from 2011 onwards in terms of buying homes and being responsible with their with the roof over their head and thinking about their mortgages and so forth. And we got ourselves away from excessive home flipping and reverse mortgages and all sorts of other ridiculous products that were not in people's financial best interest. So 
you know, there is a definitely a cleansing process and a learning process, and it won't apply equally and it won't apply to everyone. But the majority of people, hopefully to your, to my first point and to, to this conversation, will see that having financial awareness does help them now make good, sound, long-term decisions. And there will be a subsegment of the population, probably of the louder subsegment. Mm-hmm. Uh, that will either complain or continue to try to have some angles of this behavior. But yeah, gamification and all that kind of stuff probably is not going away. It's just, it's upon us, upon Acorns and upon, you know, I think more broadly the community of investors to recognize the history of long-term investing versus this period of time. Fair enough. That That's a good comparison to this period I was referring to, too the uh, housing bubble and the fact that those same younger people coming of age went out and bought new houses. It didn't stop anybody from uh, from seeing that as an opportunity over time as well. That's a good, I take your point there. Um, but what types of questions then have you guys been getting from you know your younger investors in the app now that the market is in a different place than it was six or so months ago? Yeah. So I think the number one thing that, and this is a genre of questions that people ask, but are all sort of similar, which is you know, the market this year has been very difficult if you look at year to date. So the S&P is down, let's say, mid-teens, some tech the angles of tech are down a lot. Uh, and so they, they, the common question is, should I still be investing? Should I change the way I'm investing? Like, should I do something different if the market's down this much? The the I'm here now, you know, what's next type of mindset, mm-hmm. um, which I love those questions, right? Because the, the the irony is, is that if you, if you walked into... Uh, if you walked into a store and the, the shirt you wanted had a 30% off sale on it, you'd be like, oh, great. That's awesome. I saved myself some money yeah. um, in buying. And yet somehow, for lots of reasons, you know, we can unpack emotionally, people don't look at the stock market the same way. But it truly is, you know, at a broad basis, if you look at the S&P 500, uh, a very similar concept, right? I mean, the idea that their cycles are normal, whether it be interest rate cycles or economic cycles. And so the markets do have downgrades. They do have corrections of 10, 15%. They do have you know, bear markets of 20, 25, 30%. These things happen. It gives you a chance to, to invest through the down cycles, which is a great way to make money uh, on, the, on the return side. Yep. Um, those are the questions people ask. Our job is to educate them in the, the history lesson of that these things do happen and they are normal. Uh, and then offering them and, and exposing to them tools or, or investment mindsets uh, that that meet them where they're at and meet the market where it's at. So that's the predominance of the major questions. And then we get other things like, you know, how do I think about whether it be student debt, you know, managing paycheck to paycheck or other types of things as well. Yeah, uh, that, uh, that age old calculus between paying off debt versus using that same money to invest. Yeah, I mean, listen, there's... Uh, there's different levels of indebtedness uh, for sure, whether it just be student debt or whether you have credit card debt and, and car loans and house loans and so forth. Uh, and then there's obviously different interest rates associated with that. So, you know, we can unpack that to degrees upon degrees. Sure. The simple thing that I try and I think we try as a, as a company to educate people on is not all debt is equal. Some mm-hmm. debt is good debt. But listen, there's a reason why healthy home mortgages exist to help people buy homes. Uh, and then there's, uh, unfortunately, there's high interest rate that can be crippling like credit card debt and so forth. So, you know, the right type of debt in the right amounts with financial prudence helps you set yourself up for the right long-term returns in terms of being able to then find money to invest in the market and so forth. So it's a it's a complicated topic, but there's, there's lots of ways to think about it. The way I've started to categorize that for people now is productive debt versus unproductive debt, right? So Perfect. if a student loan 
is the thing that you're concerned about. Well, that's productive debt that's going to pay however many multiples in the future because you can command a higher salary now with that new degree than you would have been able to without going to school and getting it, right? So that's a productive debt that you took out. Or a car loan generally is going to be a productive debt because it allows you to get from point A to point B and take yourself to work to clock in and clock out or whatever to perform that job duty that you got to do. But a credit card or a personal loan or something else that's an unsecured debt that's tied to consumption is an unproductive debt because it doesn't actually generate any results for you or any return for you. It's actually just you bringing tomorrow's purchases into today, right? You borrowed money from tomorrow to spend today, and now you're having to, to uh, pay that back. So it's unproductive in the, in the bigger scheme of things is the way that I frame it for people, which I've found now actually does start to help people think about it a little bit differently and actually feel a little bit better about their student loans sometimes when I say it that way too. I love that explanation. Yeah. It's funny. Like when you find something that resonates, even though you've probably talked about it a thousand times, you find that little knack to explain something that's complicated in a simple format that works for people. You know, you just, you got to keep using it because the more to your point earlier about asking about our chief education officer, you know, the more you could spread the the gospel of good education on financial awareness, the better it is for, for everyone. So um, yeah. I appreciate that. Well, so sort of on a related note, I, I'm curious, you guys have a, a pretty tight relationship with CNBC. So I'll ask you a question about the financial media. And I am asking this question while fully acknowledging my role as part of the financial media. But how do you guys help to save your, you know, your users, your clients, your customers from themselves when you're promoting, you know, responsible investing through things like dollar cost averaging, for example, you mentioned. And in some cases, they just want to hear about, you know, what stock they should be buying today that's going to 20x their return or make them rich overnight and change their life, like I was talking about. How do you guys sort of walk that fine line, if that makes sense. God, I love that. Um, Yeah. I mean, listen, I'm going to, present company aside, you know, (laughs) the people who, who, um, okay. So every business and every person has a bias, right? And Mm -hmm. one of the things that we try to make sure that we're clear about and make sure our customers are educated about is to know what the bias is, right? If you're, if you're the owner of a trading app, you know, your bias to the consumer is to get them to trade. You know, and if you're the media company, I've heard anchors on TV talk about how they have 12 hours of TV time or 17 hours of TV time to fill. Mm-hmm. I mean, that is going to create the need for, you know, inflammatory type language to get people to, to, to keep watching, right? Uh, and the same is true uh, if you look at any of the, the headline grabbing media press. What we try to do, you know, we care about making sure that people invest for the long term. You know, that's our bias, the financial wellness over the long term. And so with that comes facts and figures tied to what the market has actually done Mm -hmm. and what you should or shouldn't pay attention to and piercing through that noise uh, by keeping things A, simple, uh, but B, really factually accurate. Because we're not trying to drive people towards make a trade today or to look at the market today versus tomorrow, Uh, but to recognize that over the long term, the market's averaged about 10% for the last 100 years. And so if you keep that expectation in mind, if it does better than that, you'd be pleasantly surprised. And if it does worse than that, you know that you have the long-term averages in your favor. Uh, And to really educate sort of by topic when we're in certain periods where the news media media conflates ideas, right? So today, I give you the biggest one. Today, the the market, uh, the media is screaming about, are we on the verge of a recession? Mm -hmm. 
Well, we might be, you know, and, and nobody knows for sure. And usually it's backwards looking by the time you know, all the statistical data tells us that we were or weren't in one. Um, but like, let's get, let's look at the history of, there's been 15 recessions in the last hundred years. Yep. And if you look at those 15 recessions and you look at the stock market, the stock market is actually from start to finish has gone up seven of those 15 recessions. So half the time, almost half the time has had a positive return. You wouldn't know that if you were the average investor mm-hmm. looking at the news media today and listening to the way that they talk about the doomsday uh, potential doomsday scenario of the stock market tied to the economy. Yeah. You know, that's conflating economic outcomes with stock market outcomes. And they're truly untied in so many ways. But listen, that's the media's bias. I appreciate what their role is in the system. And our job is just to make sure that like we try to provide some counterbalance with, uh, you know, let's call it medium to longer term facts. So people stay educated on, on the right way to think about things. Yeah, it, 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 <laughs> there's no perfect way to 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 do it i guess is the the button i would put on that is that you know you want to get people's engagement and in order to do that you've got to position information in a way that's educational and also entertaining to some degree and also put it in a place where it's easy for them to find it and that's a very very delicate balance to have to do but i i i I do appreciate though that there's so many different outlets that you can go to to find your more wonkier analysis you know if you're a, a a finance nerd who wants you know serious breakdowns and technicals and charting and all that or you can go you know online to outlets to find much simpler breakdowns of things that just give me the very high level talk to me like i'm a, I'm a five-year-old yeah i mean listen the other thing i'll to this all is um you know we all have conditional response right so the, the I remember investing in the markets in 2010 and 11, and every time there was a headline on some you know, European sovereign country, you know people thought we had you know Greece all over again, and so the markets would like panic and freak out, uh, and it made sense, right? You were coming out or trying to come out of that period, uh, and you realize like, oh my God, we could have another situation on our hands, and so the muscle memory from that period of time. You know, the same is true uh, more broadly when you think about not just the media, but I think investors' mindset today, which is the last recession that we all experienced of any material degree, and let's put the pandemic aside for obvious reasons, mm-hmm. was 07, 08. And so if, you, if that is your only reference point, then you're likely to use that as your, your entire set of knowledge, right? But the reality is there are longer periods and there are other ways to think about, you know, how do you understand history and what either recessions or market corrections look like? And so, you know, you raise a good point. It's very difficult to get that information out there. It's difficult to get it out there in a way that people want to consume and it can consume it easily. And so everyone's got their sort of role to play, if you will. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and I just hope that as the consumer side of this, that people are open-minded to understanding various points in history and then be able to make good decisions for themselves. And so um, they, if they're, if they stay intellectually curious, they'll see that there's uh, lots of history for them to consume and, and then figure out where, it's, where we're headed next. Well, let me, let me go a different direction for a second, talking about sort of trends and such. Are you guys seeing much of an uptick in younger investors wanting to invest in ESG or is that more headlines than reality for now? No. So, you know, we do. It's a good question because, you know, for people who don't know ESG, uh, environmental social governance as the E, the E, the S and the G and the acronym. Mm -hmm. And the point is, is that people investing in their capital should be going in, you know, making sure that both society, uh, shareholders and the environment are protected. 
Uh, it's one piece in the in the in the what's the word in the system, right? I mean, it's also incumbent upon uh, companies themselves to be good actors and us as individuals as well. But certainly, making sure that capital is moved in the right direction is helpful. Mm-hmm. Um, we do see that as being a, a demand pocket from younger investors. I think what has the stigma around the industry that has, that has hurt ESG of late is that. I think there's some greenwashing is the common term, but let's just call it funny numbers that get associated with certain companies who uh, try to game the metrics in order to score highly on ESG profiles that really aren't doing all the best things that they could be doing. Or their perception amongst investors is that if you invest in ESG, that the only thing that they're investing in is something that's really high quality from the environment. And that's not always the case because there's also the S and the G. Uh, there's ESG funds that are focused on turning, or, or I should say, um, influencing bad actors, let's maybe even in the fossil fuel industry to become good actors over time. So there's lots of ways to uh, think about the shades of ESG investing. And I think the mm-hmm. industry is going to mature a lot. But the idea that like young investors want to make sure that their money is being put behind companies that are either doing the right thing or plan to do the right thing is definitely a palpable trend that we see. Something that we continue to figure out what are the best ways for our investors to be our customers to be able to express those views themselves. And we're working on that. Uh, actually, I was just working on that before this call, uh, before this podcast. Uh, and so I would imagine over time that industry will continue to grow. I would, I would, as a sub, as a corollary to that, I would say, I do think though that over time, what you'll see is that uh, the responsibility will really, really shift to corporate companies acting in the right way, as mm-hmm. opposed to investors having to hold their hand or force their decision making mm-hmm. by withholding capital. And so that will be some uh, maturation of the industry. I think. Uh, I think we'll see going forward. I actually just just saw that on the news. I guess earlier this week, where new regulations are being proposed by the SEC and a couple other govern governing bodies, specifically in the manufacturing space. I guess that's where they'll start, and then they'll work their way into other industries, but they have these plans to make basically the company responsible for its own compliance with these environmental regulations and disclose this information now as part of their financial disclosures that come out on a quarterly basis, along with their earnings and everything else. So I think you're right that the government has decided legislating the companies into doing the right thing is more likely to get us there sooner than having investors put pressure on the companies to do the right thing. Because at the end of the day, if you're returning capital to shareholders, people are willing to overlook a lot of stuff. I'll just use that word. Yeah. I mean, listen, it's also something that you learn, particularly if you have kids, it's like, do you want to invest more in your strengths or do you want to invest more in your weaknesses? Right. So, uh, and there's good thought on both sides of that uh, coin. So, you know, when it comes to investing this way, there's one mindset in ESG, which is only to give capital to good actors. Uh, but there's another mindset, which is to give com- capital to those who are not great actors, but plan to become good actors. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think uh, I think there's going to be space for both. And the more disclosure, the more transparency, the more uh, we'll be able to, as investors, make those judgment decisions for ourselves. Uh, and that will only benefit, you know, certainly benefit everybody. Any types of investments younger folks are telling you they absolutely want to avoid? Well, certainly, you know, along these lines, the negative stigma towards anything fossil fuel oriented is is significant. So that might be somewhat of a statement of the obvious, but that certainly is the is the is the big one. Other than that, uh, no, I mean, I I think people are obviously intrigued. Uh, I'll take the other side of that coin. People are obviously intrigued by the idea of like 
how whether it be blockchain or cryptocurrencies will impact the you know financial system mm -hmm. and whether money their relationship with money will transition from or it is transitioning but to what degree and to how quickly it'll sustain itself in the in the digital world versus all the other ways that we've thought about money in the past uh, so that's clearly going to be a, a you know a trend worth watching on both sides of the coin how the banks respond to this uh you know you know certainly will be fascinating uh, but I, I don't feel like uh people are are overly adverse to, you know, let's call it subsectors, if you will. Mm -hmm. I think that there's actually a large segment of the younger population for a long period of time that doesn't have a lot of exposure to bonds. And we've had no interest rates essentially since 2006, seven. Yeah. Uh, and so there's a generation of people who don't appreciate necessarily the interest income and yield that you can get off of a bond portfolio. So, so that'll be certainly intriguing and fun to watch as interest rates rise, like how we rebalance people's proper portfolios uh, over the long term from that mindset. Uh, so maybe that's a pocket of avoidance that that probably gets uh, you know uh, unwound. I would say yeah. going forward. So my last question actually has absolutely nothing to do with acorns at all, and may have nothing to do with the markets either. So you can you can sit back in your seat and relax a little bit for this one. But let's say for a moment you never found your passion for investing, right? So you had to occupy your days a different way, but yeah. money wasn't a factor in your decision making at all. What yeah. do you think you'd be doing right now? Uh, I'd be an architect. Hmm. Okay. That was yeah. very quick. Like you knew that one, like you've been thinking about it every day for the last couple of no, years. No, my wife jokes with me all the time. Like we, we, we've had this conversation multiple times. Yeah. I just love the idea of like the, like that, that systematic, I mean, I mean, it's probably just a personality trait that ties back to investing, right? Like it's, mm -hmm. it's that like systematic planning of like, there's a design here. Like what is the optimal design? What should it look like? How do you, you know, you quantify it. And certainly there's a creative aspect of it as well. You know, that there's the sort of the, the right design for the right space. You know, it's, it's akin and I'm just, um, I'm just rolling off this thread here, but it's sort of like, I guess the right portfolio for the right person. Yeah. I would, I would certainly be in the creative space. I would be, I would be an architect. I mean, I assume you're taking, you know, I would, I'd probably be a point guard in the NBA if you let me, but <laughs> take it now off the table. Yeah. The, uh, well, I will say based on what I know of the CFA exam, uh, if you could pass that, that bad boy in all three sections that come along with it, um, I have no doubt in my mind that architecture is, is uh, attainable as well. Um, but I appreciate you uh, making time to do this, Seth. You've been very generous with your time and this has been great um but where can people find you uh, if they want to learn more about you and or acorns after this goes live yeah sure i mean i appreciate that last uh for one i appreciate the time too and the conversation has been great um you know with the last chance here yeah listen we have we, acorns is available through the web mobile app uh download it's you know obviously uh, easy to get going we keep it simple for people. You can always find me on LinkedIn or otherwise. Uh, and if you reach out, I'm happy to respond uh, and get a conversation going around markets and otherwise. So multiple ways to find me and multiple ways to find Acorns and appreciate the time. Awesome. Well, on that note, Eric with an A, why don't you go ahead and close us out, sir? Absolutely. Gentlemen, this has been fantastic. And it's so funny, a memory flooded back to me when you were answering that question, Seth. Um, if you all remember the movie Brewster's Millions, I think if you had enough money, you could buy your way onto an NBA team. I think that's kind of what that movie's all about, except for baseball, but whatever. Anyway, that, I, I digress. Uh, again, Seth, thank you so much for being on the show. Malcolm, thank you, of course, for facilitating this and bringing in a fantastic guest. And our last thank you goes to you, the listening audience. Thank you so much for listening 
to the Tech Money Podcast with Malcolm Etheridge. If you have not subscribed to the podcast yet, please click the subscribe now button below. This way, when Malcolm comes out with a new podcast, it'll show up directly on your listening device. We humbly ask that you share this podcast, leave a review, and rate with a little bit of stars, if you wouldn't mind, as this will help others find the show. You can connect with Malcolm on social at Malcolm on Money. We'd love to hear from you and answer any questions you have. And you can do that by emailing them to podcast at tech-money.com. Again, thanks for listening today. For everyone at Tech Money, our hope is that this show helped make you a little smarter about your money. This has been the Tech Money Podcast. For more information on today's topic, to review the show notes, or to catch up on past episodes, be sure to check out malcolmetheridge.com slash podcast. And if you have an idea for a show topic that you'd like us to cover, or you want to send us feedback, the web address again is malcolmetheridge.com. You can also find Malcolm across all social media platforms at Malcolm on Money. This episode was written and created by Malcolm Etheridge, with the production, the editing and sound controls powered by Proudmouth. This has been a Malcolm on Money original. Thank you for listening. The information shared in this recording and by its guests represents the views and opinions of the guests and does not represent the views or opinions of the host. This content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. This content is not, nor is it intended to be a substitute for professional financial advice. It is always recommended that you seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your personal financial situation. This episode of the Tech Money Podcast is sponsored by Capital Area Tax Consultants. Capital Area Tax Consultants is a virtual tax and accounting firm that specializes in helping high net worth individuals navigate the complexities of the tax code. With our comprehensive tax planning services, our one goal is to help clients maximize savings and minimize their tax liability each year. Our team of certified public accountants and enrolled agents is well-versed in the latest tax laws, ensuring that you capitalize on every opportunity for strategic tax optimization. We anticipate changes and keep you up to date on opportunities to potentially reduce your tax bill in the future. With a focus on precision and strategic planning, we are your trusted partner both during tax season and throughout the year. So don't wait. Reach out to us today to experience a better approach to taxes at www.capgllc.com. Again, that web address is www.capgllc.com. Um...